This morning we come to an interesting topic, a very difficult topic, something that we're not necessarily familiar with, demon possession. And uh, this morning we have the privilege of reading God's Word, studying God's Word, looking at uh, a text from the Gospel of Mark uh, in a way that maybe they would have received it. You know, there was not necessarily a, a church that they would gather to, and they wouldn't have a, a big screen in front of them. They would be sitting maybe in the context of a, of a small room, a house kind of church, and they would have the text in front of them. And, and somebody would simply read the text. There's no chapter break, there's no verse break, but they would read the text in front of them. And they would hear uh, the message of Jesus. They'd hear about Jesus' life. And uh, what we did was we left Jesus two weeks ago, and he was crossing the Sea of Galilee. And if they were crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, a, a really bad storm came up. And it was so bad for these seasoned fishermen that um, they began to bail out of the boat and they began to try and get the water out and uh, right the sails and Jesus is sleeping in the back. They didn't know what to do. And, and finally they just called and cried out to Jesus and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They thought that Jesus didn't care about what they were going through. The text says this, Jesus got up, spoke, and he calmed the sea and it became completely calm as the way it's described there. They saw an immediate change from the words of Jesus as he calmed the sea. And rather than celebrating, rather than jumping up and down, rather than saying, our lives have been saved, they have a unique response to the power that they've just seen in the life of Jesus. They have an odd reaction, if you will. Mark chapter 4, verse 41 says this, they were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this Jesus God? And with that, they get right back in the boat and head back over across the Sea of Galilee. Five, six miles, two to three hour trip. They're heading back across to the Sea of Galilee. But this time they're going to a different part. They're going to the eastern side. The problem with the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is this. It's pagan country. This is Gentile country. Why in the world would you be crossing the street and going to a place that we never go? We don't go to those places. We all know what that's like. There are certain places that we're going to stay out of. You don't cross the street. And here they are. They're heading across, and they're going to go into another storm. Not a physical storm on the Sea of Galilee. It is a storm that is, is ravished a man, a man possessed by demons. And this is an interesting text. It's an odd text. It's an odd text in the sense that we're not familiar with these kinds of things before. I'm not familiar with that. But it's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. And so what I want to do is I, I want to read the text before us. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Here, by the way, hear the word of the Lord. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. And he tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd 
about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away, and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, from Genesis to Revelation, it reminds us of our fallen nature. It reminds us of who you are and what you've done. And Father, this morning we come to a very, very odd text, a difficult text for many in this scientific Western world that we live in. Father, to think that there is an evil presence that goes around about us who seeks to destroy us is just, it's hard to believe it's foreign for many of us. And so, Father, I pray that you would simply allow us to read the text, to study the text, and know ultimately who Jesus is and what he has done. This is about power. This is about Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I pray that this morning you would remind us of who he is, what he has done for us, and that he has come to set us free. So, Father, we ask that through your word, through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So I want you to notice that after the calming of the sea, the gospel writer does what? He he puts us right back in the boat. We're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We're going to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as I I remarked, they're going to pagan country. They're going to Gentile country. Okay, so wait a minute. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he's come to preach about what? The kingdom of God and the ramifications of the kingdom of God. Why in the world is he going to the, the other church. Why is he going to Gentile character? Why is he, why is he going to an odd place for us? Why is he crossing the street and going to a place that you and I would not go? And as soon as the, the boat lands, uh, Jesus is greeted. The boat is greeted. And it's not by the, by the welcome committee. It's not by the chamber of commerce. It's not by anyone else. It's, it's greeted by this horrible sight. A man is possessed by demons. And what the, the gospel writer Mark does, he gives us an, an incredibly vivid account of the confrontation of Jesus uh, and, and this battle, this confrontation, if you will, with this demon-possessed man. We, we have the account of, of this confrontation against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the way that Paul describes it in the book of Ephesians, if you will. And we have this confrontation between two spiritual powers. And so what I want to do this morning is, I, and I do want to ask for a little attitude. You know, I, I try and do my best to keep it in a certain amount of time. I, I just feel like I, I want to explain the, the, the text. I want to go through the text. But more importantly, I, I want to look at what we're supposed to do because of this, how we're supposed to. So I ask for just a little bit of latitude, maybe with time this morning. So I want to walk through this in three, three kind of movements, if you will. There is the destruction of this man. This, this man, it, there's a description of how he's just been destroyed on the inside, if you will. And Jesus comes alongside, and what he's doing, he, he delivers him. We're going to look at the deliverance. And, and then after the deliverance, there's some really interesting decisions that people make. The crowd, even Jesus kind of makes an odd decision here. 
And the man makes a decision. And then I want to look at what, well, what does this mean for you and I? What's the application for us this morning? So that's what we're going to go. That's kind of a basic outline. So, so let's look at the, the description of this man. Um, number one, he, he lived in an isolated uh, place from the community. Verse 3, he, where did he live? He lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead. They had this idea of on the hillside. Maybe there were some caves there, and, and that's where the tombs were. They're in these caves, and, and that's where he lived. He lived among the tombs, and he would go in and out of the tombs, and he lived, among, he lived among the dead. He was an unclean man living among the dead, if you will, the tombs. And, and, and he was violent and perverted. In Matthew's account, it says that he was a very, very violent person. Well, no wonder he lived in isolation. No wonder nobody wants to be around him, because he's a violent person. By the way, in Luke's gospel, it says that he was naked. He was naked. Walking around naked, I mean, that's just a horrible description of a man living in isolation from family, from community, from friends. It's a, it's a horrible picture. Secondly, he lived with physical ag- agony. Look at verse 5. In order to control him, what did they do? They, they would just simply bind him. Okay, everybody, let's gather together. Let's put him on the ground and let's bind him with, with what? Not with rope. With chains. They would try and bind his hand and feet with chains. They tried to hold him. They tried to subdue him like an animal, if you will. And what did he do? He would literally break through the chains. Have you ever seen something like that? I have never seen anything like that in life, something so powerful that they would be able to break chains. And probably worse than that is there were flintstones located in the area, and he would, he would just grab these flintstones, and he would just gouge himself, and he would cut himself. He's living in total isolation. He's living in agony, the pain around him. And the other thing is he's emotional agony. I mean, he's crying out. The text says this, day and night he's crying out in agony. And, and when you read the text, you kind of, we're not really sure, is this the man or the, we're just, we don't really know exactly what's going on. There's no doubt that this shrieking, he's crying out in pain and agony, physical agony, isolation, if you will. And in Luke's gospel, it says that this has been going on for a long time. We don't know specifically, but obviously it's been going on for a long time. That's the condition of this man. And probably the worst thing is this. No one could help him. No one could help him. When you look at the text, it says no one was able to help him. He was hopeless and helpless because of this condition. The only thing that they could do to help him is to try and subdue him. And what they would do is they would put chains around him, they would bind him, and they would try and subdue him like an animal. That's what the text means. They're trying to subdue him. He looks like an animal. It's a horrible description of the condition of this man. And by the way, this is not the first time. This is not the first time that Mark has discussed demon possession. Mark chapter 1, they were in a synagogue, remember? In the synagogue, the, the, the demonic man cried out in agony. In chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus was, was casting out demons, and, and the, he would not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. This is not the first count. But what we have here is an incredibly vivid picture of possession of this man. And ultimately, if you will, a picture of what Satan and the demonic beings and the evil spiritual world desire to do. Imagine, if you will, after your service, you leave here and you take your family to go to the Sonic or you go over here to the Jack in the Box and you're standing outside and you're getting ready to get some food and all of a sudden somebody comes running out, yelling and screaming with no clothes on, shrieking at you in agony, bloody. You'd be shocked. You wouldn't know what to do. And all the people are almost saying, we've tried to help him, we just don't know what to do. He's just in this condition. Then he would run and hide back into the into the tombs over here. And we would look at that and we would go, what in the world is going on? This man was living in a hopeless and helpless situation, if you will. I want to say something. I, I am confident that you and I come across people who are not necessarily demon-possessed. They're not necessarily demon. 
but there's no doubt in my mind that they have, hey, have at a certain point in time felt hopeless or helpless. Maybe something bad has happened. Maybe someone has died. Maybe something else has happened. But they have this feeling, this sense of being helpless or hopeless. Go back and look at the Psalms. Go back and look at all of these things. The psalmist crying out saying, God, where are you? In the midst of pain and suffering, people feel helpless and hopeless and they don't know where to go. I, uh, I read that from 1999 to 2016, suicide rates in the United States increased dramatically. Almost in every state, the suicide rates grew up. That was pre-COVID. I would imagine it's gotten a little higher after COVID. According to one statistic, there were 47,646 suicides in 2021. Think of all those families. Thousands have been affected by something, probably becoming so helpless, hopeless, not knowing where to turn that they would do the ultimate and they would simply take their life. Maybe we're living in a day and age where people feel helpless. They feel hopeless. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And if you don't know where to go and what to do, you're at a dead end. If you're looking at life and thinking that there is no way out, you could be in this situation right And what the gospel writer Mark does is he's offering a contrast, if you will, in this demon-possessed man and what Satan, a demonic being in the evil world, would do in a contrast with the might and the power and the glory and the perfection of Jesus and what he actually offers to you and I. I don't want to live in a hopeless world. I don't want to live helplessly. I want to know that there is someone or something out there to get me out of this. And that's what Jesus spoke to in John chapter 10, verse 10. Notice the contrast in John chapter 10. The thief... Satan, demonic beings, the prince of the power of the air, the adversary, the thief comes to kill, to rob and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in, it in the full. What a contrast of purposes of life and the way to look at life and the way to look at the world around you and look at the things that are going on in my life. Jesus said this, I, I, I come that you may have life and I want you to have it in the full, in the wonder and the beauty of who I am and what I can do for you, and what I can offer you. And what's interesting in our text is this. In our text, Jesus simply comes and he speaks with authority. He speaks with authority. Go back and look at chapter 4. Right before this, what has happened? The storm comes up, and Jesus simply speaks these words, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and what it became completely calm. They saw an immediate reaction to the natural world. In our text, in chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, Jesus spoke to the man these words, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And he leaves. He has to leave. I want you to know that this is where I believe Mark is going. Jesus is the Lord of creation and Jesus is the Lord of life. And there's nothing that you're going... You may feel helpless. You may feel hopeless. You may feel that deep inside. You may be looking at the circumstances of your life going, I don't see any way out of this. Jesus says, listen, I am the Lord of life. And he came speaking about what the kingdom of God and the reality of the kingdom of God. Go back and, and look at the life of Jesus. When he first comes on the scene, and Luke chapter 4, he's, he's in the city of Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue, and he's in the synagogue, and they're all worshiping. And he stands up, and he goes to the front. And the leader comes, and he hands him, he hands him this scroll of the, of the prophet Isaiah. And, and Jesus unrolls the scroll, and he gets to the point where these words are read, and then he reads these words. We know it as Isaiah 61. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners. And then he rolled it up and he sat back down in his pew in his seat. And then he said these words, Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your. Jesus' point is that through him, the work of the Messiah had begun. All of those promises, all of those promises about the Messiah and what he would come to do, all of those promises are now being fulfilled, if you will, in the life and the person of who Jesus is and what he's. Jesus, because he is the Messiah, has the power to help hopeless and helpless people, if you will. And so Jesus gathers his men together. They cross the Sea of Galilee. He is confronted by this helpless and hopeless man. And then, and then in, in a beautiful display of the power of the Messiah and who he is and what he would do, he brings healing to this man. He delivers this man. And as we walk through the deliverance, I want you to notice the theological, if you will, truths that tell us why Jesus is fully able to confront this man and deal with him and deliver him from his pain and suffering. Notice a couple of things. Number one, the demons, they recognize Jesus. I wonder how they recognize a big sign from Jesus. Verse 2 says this, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came to meet him from the tombs. He didn't run and go hide. He didn't go deeper in the tombs. He didn't scatter. He says he, he came out to meet him, to confront him. Verse 6, it says this. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and what? And he fell on his knees in front of him. I, I don't think this is an act of worship. I think this is an act of submission, an act of respect. I don't think he's coming to worship. I, I think he's recognizing in the unique person and identity of Jesus, someone he needs to fall at and worship before him out of respect and submission. And, and then in verse 7, the man spoke, and he says these words, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Why did this man come out of the tombs? Why did he come out and state these words, if you will? This man knows something about the identity of Jesus that maybe the disciples, maybe the people, don't really know and understand stand yet. Maybe their ability to recognize who he is and what's going Maybe there's something going on in the supernatural world, in the world that we cannot see, where they're communicating in such a way that they have the opportunity to identify who Jesus is. See, they have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. You are the son of the most high God. Do not come and torture me. They know that one day in the future they are going to be bound to the abyss forever and ever. They have an understanding of the identity of Jesus. They have an understanding of what's going to happen with them in the future. Jesus had already dealt with them 40 days and 40 nights in the temptation, over and over doing battle. They have this recognition, they have this understanding of Jesus. Jesus has already confronted them in the synagogue with a demon-possessed man. He had already cast out multiple demons. So the, the, the demons come, it's this man arrives on the shore. They, they come, he comes, and, and, and they confront Jesus with the reality of his identity. And James chapter 2, verse 19 says this, You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Listen, the demons have a correct understanding of the nature, character, and identity, which, which challenges me is, 
Do I have a theological understanding of the nature and the character of Jesus and who he is and how he's come to what set us free? Jesus is able to offer deliverance because of identity as the Son of God. Notice what else they're hostile to Jesus. In, in verse seven, in making the seven, the in, in verse seven, in making the statement, "What do you want with me?" They're basically saying, "What do we have in common with you? We have nothing in common. We are an enemy of you. We would like to destroy you. We would like to destroy anyone who would come to embrace you and put their faith and their trust in you." It seems to me in making the statement that Jesus is the son of the most high guy, they're responding to the identity, the authority of Jesus and who he is and what he would do. In Matthew's account, it has the idea that um, Jesus is the son of the most high guy. Have you come to destroy us before the time? In other words, they know and they recognize that the judgment is coming to them in the future. Have you come now to destroy us? Recognizing in the future there's going to be judgment for them, if you will. They were hostile to anything that Jesus would do. For this man, Peter, no doubt on the, on the shore in the boat. This is what he would write later in First Peter. He says this, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lord, roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Listen, the battle is, the battle is, they're enemies of God. And they would do all that they can to stop people from ultimately putting their faith and their trust in who Jesus is as the son of the most high God. Go back and read Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. They're in, in, in uh, Philippi and, and Paul's going around preaching, teaching. And remember the gal who's following alongside? Hey, Paul has a message and he's trying to tell you how to be saved. And over and over, day after day, this is going on. And Paul finally says, he's fed up with it. And he says, I'm going to cast out this demon. And he does. What was the demonic being trying? What was this gal trying to do? He's trying to stop people from being saved by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus. And Jesus finally said, be gone, get out of here. They recognize Jesus. They're hostile to Jesus. And notice how powerful they are. I mean, they, they're able to subdue this man who's been chained. In, in verse 9, uh, they ask, uh, Jesus asked them, what is your name? My name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. Legion. You, you know what a legion is? That's from five Five to six thousand, five to six thousand soldiers. Are we getting a picture here of Jesus outnumbered, hostile? This is a, an incredibly powerful picture of, of this man and the condition that he was in. And finally, notice the destructive nature of the man. We know exactly what they wanted to do. Not only did they want to subdue him, not only did they want to torture him, not only did they want to do real harm to him, but in 13, verse 13, we know exactly what he wanted. Because they destroyed the pigs, ultimately they wanted to destroy the man. That's what they really Knowing Jesus' identity, authority, and power, they begged Jesus not to be sent into the abyss where they will one day face and be kept for eternity. But they wanted to inhabit some pigs on the side. And you know what they do? They, they had to ask Jesus for permission. And Jesus granted their permission. Verse 13, there is no doubt about Jesus' power, about his identity, about who he is, what he's come to do from the standpoint of these demons. They know exactly what's going on in the destructive nature. So here's this man. He's in a helpless, helpless situation. You describe all that. It, it, it's absolutely horrible in, in what has happened to him on the inside. He's isolated from And then Jesus comes and with simple words come out of him and in submission to his words, they leave. And they go and they inhabit pigs and these pigs, 2,000 of them, the hill into the wall. You know, we all want to know what happened to the pigs and what happened to the situation. We're not given that answer because I don't think that's the point of the story. I don't think that that's what Mark wants to highlight. 
I think what Mark wants to highlight is verse 15. Let me read verse 15. Probably one of the most beautiful verses in this chapter. When they, the townspeople, came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion of demons, sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What an incredible transformation of a man whose life is radically helpless, hopeless. Jesus comes, speaks, and his life is radically beautiful picture. God wants to do in Listen, I don't know what you're going, but remember, you and I have the message. We have the message in the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. The message to take to helpless and to hopeless. And by the way, that's exactly what this guy is going to do. Jesus is not going to let him go with him. He's going to say no. He's calling people to follow. Come follow me. He's already called 12. This guy wants to go with them, and Jesus is going to say, no, I want you to go with me. I want you to stay here. And I want you to tell all of these people in this area, your family, your friends, I want you to tell all of them what the Lord has done to you, what the Lord has done for you, and what? In showing you mercy. and showing you mercy. And that's what he's going to do. That's what he will do. The crowd, remember the crowd? The crowd sees what's going on, the herdsmen. They hear what's going on. They want to check it out themselves. They come back. They see this man in his right mind. They see the dead pigs. And you know what their response is? It's not, yay. This guy was living in the tombs. And he was fearful and he was all alone. Yay, we're going to celebrate. We're going to throw a party. Their response is what? Fear. Afraid. They're amazed, but they're afraid. And in their amazement and in their fear, what do they do? They plead with Jesus. Go. I mean, think about it. They, they would rather live with this demon-possessed man. They would rather live in the situation rather than see this man freed of all the different pains and sufferings that have ravished him on the inside. Listen, what kind of philosophy, what kind of worldview, what kind of belief system puts pigs and profit and, and, and money above the soul of one individual? Think about it. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee, for one soul, so that his life would be changed and transformed. This man will be in eternity because of what Jesus has done. What is the value of a human soul? I think we see the value of the human soul. The crowds wanted Jesus to leave. The man wanted to go with Jesus. And and notice Jesus' kind of interesting response, verse 19. Go home and tell your family, about how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Listen, Jesus, I want to go with you. I'll be a great testimony. I'll be, I mean, I could tell people. I could tell people about how my, I was demon-possessed, and I can go and I can, I can tell all these people about what you've done. And, and maybe we can go from city to city, and I can tell all that. And maybe as he told that, people would go, really? Is that really what happened to you? But if he stays in the area and he goes back among his family and he goes back among his friends and he goes back and tells them all that the Lord has done for him, he becomes a light in the midst of the darkness. Remember how he was? Let me tell you about the guy by the name of who changed and transformed and freed me from my helpless and my hopeless situation. He becomes a testimony. Why does he become a testimony? Because he could not be controlled And here he's sitting there. He was naked and he was clothed. Now, he's crying out and cutting himself, but now he's in his right mind. He was living among the tombs, and Jesus says, go among your family. Satan has done all of this stuff, captured you, and notice what Jesus has done. No wonder this man did what Jesus said. Back to the Decapolis, back to the people, and telling them what Jesus has done. And by the way, 
Jesus is going to come back to this here in chapter 7. And when he lands, guess what? All of these people are going to come, and they're going to want to know Jesus, and who he is and what he's And maybe all of that is because of the testimony of this man that is a copolis. Okay, so let me just take a minute or two to, to try and drive this home. Is this something, is this just the boogeyman that hides out under a, we know he's not, but we just want to think that he's, because we want to find some kind of understanding of the bad things. I read an article by a, by a psychiatrist. He wrote this in 2015, and I just want to read it. And it's about his understanding of the nature of evil. And this is the title of the article, The Devil, question mark, seriously, 2015. How can people seriously believe in the devil? The year is 2015, not 1315. And yet the fact remains that tens of millions of Americans continue to believe that there's a magical, wicked, evil, oh, and smart being out there doing magical, wicked, evil deeds and presiding over a fiery realm where demons crawl and witches cackle. Oh, wait, no cackling witches, just demons, right? And then he goes on to say this. According to a 2013 YouGov survey, 57% of Americans believe in the devil. And yes, that is 57% of American adults, not kindergartners. But hey, it's probably the same percentage among that demographic too. Only a completely uninformed, poorly educated mind with little knowledge of things like evidence could believe in the devil. Oh, wait, scratch that. Actually, top neurosurgeons, and he quoted Ben Carson, and Supreme Court Justices Anthony Scalia, he quoted him, and millions upon millions of other well-educated, upstanding men and women to believe. And this was his conclusion. But there's no such thing as the devil, just there's no such thing as fairies, imps, or goblins. The two largest religions... In the world, Christianity and Islam teach that there is a devil, and they are wrong. There is no evidence for such a thing, not a shred. It is simply something that germinated from the unscientific, irrational minds of early humans who tried their best to explain why bad things happen to good people, why good people sometimes do bad things, and why there is so much needless suffering. And basically what he's saying is, you are off your rocker. If you believe this text in the Gospel of Mark has any relevance to you and I today, it's just a figment of your imagination. Is that true? Is that true? And my question to us is this, well, what do you believe? And where do you believe? And where does it fall in line with what the Bible has to do? A few years ago, I read a book uh, by C.S. Lewis, and it called The Screwtape Letters. And in the book, the basic premise of the book is uh, Screwtape is a devil, and what he's doing is he's writing letters to Wormwood, his nephew, about how to keep this, this man, this British man, how to keep him in sin, and ultimately how to keep him away from embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. But this is what C.S. Lewis, that brilliant philosopher, says about this idea of evil. He says this. I want to put it on the screen. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which we can errors in which our race can fall about the devils one is to disbelieve in their existence the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them the devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic or a magician a secularist or a fanatic with the same delight. In other words, there's two experience. You see the devil, you see the Satan behind everything, or he's way over here and he's not involved in anything. It's a figment of our image. I think what the Bible does is the Bible gives us a balanced response. And I just want to end with a couple of things. Why is Mark 
bringing this text to light. Number one, to remind us that Jesus is Lord. Remember, we began in chapter 4, verse 41. Who is this? Our next scene is Jesus is going to confront disease. He's going to confront death. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you're going to see this passage, if you will, on unbelief. The Bible affirms that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you trust him for your life and your helpless, hopeless situation? Do you believe that God is sovereign? And is he the Lord of your life? Have you put your ultimate faith and trust in him? Who is this man? Second thing is this. Satan's defeated. At the cross, Satan was defeated. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says this. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was the victory for Jesus, for us. Death, destruction, disease, all of that is laid upon Jesus at the cross. And you and I have the privilege of living in the freedom of Jesus being the Lord of our life and in victory because of his death on the cross and defeating of Satan. Number three is this. You are in a spiritual, there is a spiritual battle going, you can't feel it, but it's going. Let me ask you, are you aware of it? Have you put on the full armor of God? Have you, have you put this armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6? Let me just read the text. Ephesians chapter 6, the context of spiritual warfare says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. What's interesting, the, the word scheme in verse 11 has the idea of a wild animal going after a particular prey and trying to maneuver and capture that prey. And that's the way that Satan and his demons are described as going after Christians, after people. Jesus is Lord. Satan is defeated. We're in a spiritual battle. And a lot of times Satan comes to us. You have to be discerning, but you can't see it, express it. Listen, he's not the devil with this. He doesn't come like this with a pitchfork and red. He's not coming like that at all. Second Corinthians says this, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be with their actions. He comes described, uh, disguised as an angel. The philosophies, the things that are going on, our hearts and minds, every day. Our children, our young people being bombarded every day with messages that are contrary to the word of God. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they don't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And they're indicted with those messages. And the last thing of application is this. There is no greater testimony in your frame of reference. There's no greater testimony in your work. There's no greater testimony in your neighbors and your family than your life and how you've been. That's what this man was. His man was, this man was radically changed. And he went and he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He went and told everybody about who Jesus is and how he had freed. Verse 20 says, so the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all of the people were amazed. We're kind of left of what kind of amazement. And would they respond to the amazement of Jesus? I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how this, this text hits us. Now, most of us, we know the Bible. We're, we're secure in our relationship. We're secure in our faith. Be mindful that 
We've been given a message to tell people, helpless, hopeless people, about who Jesus is and that he has the power to free. And there are even Christians. Listen, there are Christians that struggle mightily in some of these areas. They struggle mightily, don't they? We know it. We've seen it. We have the privilege of coming alongside and helping them, praying for them, pulling them alongside it. And so I hope that we will. We know that Jesus is Lord and he has the power. Listen, I realize I've, I've gone a long time. I realize that. I just want you to know Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of our life, and he will protect us. And he will. As, a, as a demonstration of Jesus' life and his power and what he's done for us, we have the privilege right now of taking the, the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray. Our men are going to come, and then we are going to celebrate Jesus' broken body on the cross. We're going to celebrate Jesus' bloodshed. We're going to remember who is and what he's done. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the life of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of it how he's come to free us, Lord. Father, the Bible talks about it. If we're free in Christ, we are free indeed. Thank you that you've come to, to set us free, and we walk in this freedom, Lord. Thank you. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, and we simply come to you, and, and we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the way that you've, you've taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, Lord, and you've placed it ultimately in the, in the kingdom of your Son. We thank you for that. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here struggling in any way this morning, God, that, that you, Jesus is Lord, would reveal yourself to them and speak mightily to their heart and to their soul. And Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus.